Okay, I think we're finally live here. So, so I, I had a, I had a Zaidi who was living in Crown Heights, as I was at the time, together with me. Later he moved to Eretz Yisrael. This is my paternal grandfather. And he was a tremendous, tremendous Talmud Chacham. I've shared stories about him in the past. He learned Torah under the fury of communist oppression. Before the Holocaust sprang on the rest of world Jewry, um, Isaiah was suffering in communist Russia in unimaginable ways, actually, with incredible difficulties. And, and he studied Torah. And he actually became a, a huge Talmud Chacham, a big Torah scholar, which was very, very unusual for the young people who were living in the Soviet Union at the time. Many of his peers did not really succeed in Torah study as much as he did. And he was a big Talmud Chacham, and he loved to learn Torah. And then, you know, I wanted to please him. And I wanted, uh, I wanted to be a Talmud Chacham. I wanted to, both of my Zaydis were always harassing me and you know, kind of like giving me over the head, you need to learn, you need to learn, you need to be a Talmud Chacham. <laughs> and like, if I wasn't going to know how to learn, I, I wasn't going to amount to anything. So, so I really wanted to learn. And, and I had this idea that maybe, maybe it was my father's idea, I don't remember, that I could learn to say the Nigla instead of going to the Beit Medrash, or the Zal as we used to call it, that I could learn with my grandfather. He was already in his 70s, what, just about 70, which at that time seemed very old to me. And, and he's a big Talmud Chacham, and he's ready to learn with me. So I, I approached um, one of my Rosh Yeshiva, Rabbi Yisol Friedman, Zechariah Lavracha, and I shared the story with some people recently, but I don't think I shared it online. And I asked him if I could have permission to learn with my Zayda. My, uh, my father's father. And I thought that Saul was this tremendous Torah genius who appreciated, knew my grandfather well personally, and he would appreciate, you know, uh, where he was coming from, what that was about. So I thought for sure he was going to say, you know, of course you should do that. That's a wonderful idea. And I was very, very surprised by his response. And I was, I was actually perturbed by it until I got older and wiser. He said to me, he said, your Zayda is Shana Alta Id, he said, he's already an old man, which <laughs> really he wasn't, but proverbially speaking. I think my Shiva was about my age then, and I thought he was old. He said, your, your Zayda is already an old man, he said, and, and people who are older, people who are elderly, he said, are not in a rush. They're not in a rush to finish. So he said to me, so it's a good idea, because you'll take the time to learn right, instead of learning in order to, to finish or complete. Anyway, that was, that was what he told me, and he gave me permission, so I was happy about that. I was almost offended. Why, why, why didn't he mention that my Zaid is a big Talmud Chacham, a big Torah scholar? And why didn't he tell me that I'd benefit from studying with my, my own grandfather, who was so learned? But it took years until I understood the profundity of that message. It's not about finishing. That's not how one appreciates the subject matter. It's about immersing yourself absolutely in the beauty, in the profundity, 
in the, in the sheer brilliance in the, in the illuminated Torah tradition, the Torah idea that you're studying at whatever particular moment. And I've tried very hard to make that a mainstay in my own scholastic pursuit and in the way I try to teach Torah to others. We're not in a rush, my friends. I'm sorry if you are. I know this world, everybody's in a rush. <laughs> Where are they running to? Where's, where's the glittering gold? Where's the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow? It seems to me that if we take the time to allow the life-elixing waters of the Shara B'tochen to wash over us, if we allow ourselves to immerse fully in, in these amazing ideas and words, that we're going to be enriched. So forgive me for taking some of your time and talking to you about tangential things. But anyway, that's my response to the kind fellow who emailed me, and I do appreciate the kind words. Thank you. But I'm afraid we're not going to change much, and I will leave the shortened and concise classes to others. And for those who wish, and I'm grateful for your participation, we're going to do this right. We're going to do it right. We're going to understand it well at least somewhat well. So this is the fourth episode or segment within the second chapter of Shara B'tochen. It's actually our 43rd episode of studying the Shara B'tochen inside the text, and there was a prologue before that. So with no further ado, if you're following along in the Kihat edition, where you're going to you're going to find us now on page 50. And on page 50, it opens with the way, you know, the Kihat edition introduces it. The seven qualities are only found in God. Okay, so we have talked about these unique criteria. Rabbeinu Bachai listed them precisely, clearly. Seven different categories of, of qualities that have to be met in order for anyone to confidently invest trust, full trust and full reliance to the point that one is ex able to experience peace of mind, one's able to rid themselves of all and any anxiety. And I want to reiterate that because, you know, this is really the goal. The goal of this series is not to finish the Shara B'tochen and say, ha, I finished the Shara B'tochen. <laughs> can't let go. Uh, so I'm going to share one more little thing with you. I heard that it's said over in the name of the Holy Baal Shem Tev, that he once met a Yid, he met a Jew, who very, very proudly said, Rebbe, I just finished the entire Talmud. I went through the whole thing from beginning to the end. From Brachas to Oksen. So the Baal Shem Tev looked at him sadly and he said, you went through the entire Talmud. But how many times did the Talmud go through you? So as we, we go through the Shara B'tochen, let us offer a prayer that the Shara B'tochen should go through us, should saturate us, should permeate us. Because if it does, our lives will be changed. And believe it or not, 
if we can master this book, and I'm not talking scholastically, if we can master its principles and its sacred ideas, if we can incorporate and ingest the teachings into our own bloodstream and spiritual DNA, if we can do this, we will live lives that are free of anxiety. Imagine that. No worries. We will live lives that are calm, that are tranquil, and lives that are happy. Isn't that worth an investment? So, who can you really place your full trust? In whom can one confidently and blissfully rely with nary a worry? Seven criteria were enumerated. And the Bainu Bahaya is going to demonstrate to us how these qualities are ultimately only to be found in God and in God Himself. Perhaps some of these qualities are found in some of us, never. Some are found rarely. Some are found sometimes, and maybe, just maybe, even one of these qualities can be found all the time or always in a person or in a few select people. But the question, the question will be, are any of the, are all of these qualities ever always found in any would-be provider? And the logical conclusion is most definitely not, with one glaring exception. God, of course. And strangely enough, most people continue to put their trust in mortals who can't meet these criteria. Some never, some hardly ever, or maybe sometimes. And people stubbornly and obstinately refuse to place their trust in Hashem. How, how ridiculous, how sad. But we need to come to this conclusion on our own. We shouldn't say, yes, it is so, because, because Rabbeinu Bahaya said so, because the scripture said so. We need to come to this conclusion on our own. And there are several steps of us reaching this very conclusion. The first step is Rabbeinu Bahaya's clear iteration of these seven qualities as they are found within God and God alone, or as the scripture describes the Creator vis-a-vis other providers or entities. Now for us, Scripture is God communicating with us. It's not different than getting a text message from God. This text is coming from Hashem Himself. Just like a text can show up on your iPhone. You don't say, well, my iPhone produced or, or my device produced a text. Your device didn't produce anything. Your device received a text because it's well-built and well-positioned and online. Well, a prophet is just like that. It's not the prophet's message. It's a divine message. It's a divine message that was, is, and continues to be relevant. A divine message that has really continuously resonated with meaning for people. Because it's true. Only truth will resonate all the time, all the, in every place. 
Other things will be in style or the fad, sometimes in some places. But Hashem's word is always relevant, always resonates in every place. And these are text messages from God, God telling us about Himself, God telling us things we need to know so that our relationship can be properly developed. Let's take a look at the words now of Rabbeinu Bachaya himself. Again, page 50 if you're following along in the Kahat version. So we're going to do our own examination. We'll do our own research. Don't just uh, accept it because a great sage said so. Let's think about this. Nowhere does Rabbeinu Bahaya try to force you to accept his ideas in a remarkably illuminated and you could call modern way. He demonstrates the veracity of his claims to the point that you do the math. You make the equation. You'll come to the conclusion. So if we will spend the time analyzing, if we'll kind of look into this in modern Hebrew, if law enforcement is looking into something you did, it's called a chakira, an investigation. They have a tik chakira. They'll have a file of investigation on you. So we should investigate this. Don't just accept it. <laughs> we can't convict or exonerate. We need to do our investigation. And when you'll investigate, and this, of course, is a logical process, Shiva Tanoim, these seven conditions or criteria, says, I am quite comfortable saying that you will come to the conclusion that these are not found in created entities. Rather, they will all be found in the Creator may be exalted. Now, I want to share with you the words of one of the primary commentaries on the Shara B'tachem, the Neder Bar who says, when we get to the third chapter, and we will, you will see you'll see that in truth, not even a single one of these criteria, not even one, can be met by created entities or by people. Not one. And it is only in God Yitachen is it possible to place Habitochen Hamiti true trust. But we didn't get to chapter 3. Now, Rabbeinu Bechaya is kind of still going to leave it open. He says, okay, like, let's investigate. Let's see if all of these can be found anywhere else. In fact, in the end, you and I will come to the conclusion that none of them can be found anywhere else. Never. Not rarely, not sometimes, certainly not always, but in fact never. 
But now it would seem that some of the qualities we're going to talk about can sometimes, or maybe rarely, maybe always, be found within a human provider or some other entity whom you might look to to give you the confidence about the future and remove the anxieties and worries you might have about it. So, let's move forward. The first thing we talked about, the first criteria was that you need to have a provider who cares about you. How do we describe care? We talked about compassion, pity. We talked about love. Compassion, in a certain way, kind of sums up really caring about somebody. You're compassionately disposed towards somebody. So you feel their pain, their deprivation, their needs, their sorrows, their desires, and you care. Well, if somebody really cares about me, not because I'm a means to an end, and not because by virtue of my devotion can they be exalted or feel good about themselves. They care about me because they care about me. There aren't that many providers that care about you because they care about you. Let's be real. The vast majority of people care about themselves. And if it's a question of your welfare or their welfare, who do you think they're going to choose? Do you think that the celebrities value their fans or the welfare of their fans over their own welfare? Nah. That's like a Moshe Rabbeinu, like a Rebbe kind of thing to do, to care about somebody else's welfare more than you care about your own. It was Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu, who said, erase me from your book, but preserve the people. That's called real compassion. Real compassion is the mother who says, forget about me. I'm worried about my baby. I need to save my baby's life, even if it costs my own. So this compassion that we spoke about, where is it found in its perfectly pristine, most exquisitely developed form? Rabbeinu Bechaya says, that's precisely the terminology that is used to describe none other than God himself. By God, in the scripture. Shehu, it is he, meaning God, the creator. Merachem al God has compassion over all his creatures. Compassion is not something God has. He is compassionate towards all his creatures. How do you know that? I mean, how do you know anything about God? <laughs> I mean, there's really two ways to know about somebody or something. You can, you can either have a conversation with them. You can develop a friendship or a relationship by virtue of face-to-face -face meetings and shared experiences. Or you can learn about them by, say, the things they wrote. 
There are people who devote their lives in the pursuit of a particular author, a particular teacher. They'll, they'll be really experts on everything this person has ever said or written to the point that they, they have a relationship. They know, they know almost what this person might have said. They feel a closeness because, because they're so versed about who this person is. How would you know who this person is? Well, how do I know who he is? I know what he wrote. A person expressed themselves through their writings. Well, Torah is very much like that. In fact, the first word that God uttered, that God spoke to us when we were privileged to experience mass revelation at Mount Sinai, was Anochi. And our sages tell us that Anochi is an acronym for the words Ano, Nafshi, I, my soul, Kitavit Yahavit, has been written, inscribed, and given. So God's giving him of himself. You're, when you read scripture, you're reading God's personal diary. You're, you're, you're becoming privy, you're knowing about God, because God's telling you about himself. How do the prophets describe what they were aware of, what they knew? How did God describe himself? So the first verse we're going to draw upon is found in the 103rd Psalm. It's known as Barchi Nafshi, a very famous psalm. And in this chapter of Tehillim, in the 8th verse, we read the following words. And I'm, I'll quote Rabbeinu B'chayi first. Rachum v'chanon Hashem. Compassionate and gracious is God. Now, to appreciate this statement, I would like to humbly suggest that you have to look back a verse. Because in verse 7, and I think Rabbeinu B'chayi expected you to go and read the verses kind of do your own research, he said, Kasha Nachker, do the investigation. So in verse 7, the, the scripture reads, He made known his pathways to Moses. What does that mean? The Mitzudas David explains, Darke Tuvoy, the ways of his goodness. He broadcast it, he, he shared it with Moshe, made it known to Moshe. The next three words in the verse are, Livnei Yisrael, to the children of Israel, Alilotav. Alilotav, says the Mitzudot Zion, means Masav, his actions. So he made his, his ways known to Moshe, his actions known to the children of Israel. The great Sephardic commentator, Radak, Rabbeinu David Kimchi, he says this, His ways are his, if you will, characteristics. For lack of better terminology, emotive characteristics. The way, how God engages with his creation. How does God engage with his creation? Why did God tell that to Moses? <laughs> because Moses asked. Moses wanted to know precisely this. How does God engage? How does God relate? What, what, what's like the strategy here? Because it doesn't seem to make any sense to us. 
So Moshe Rabbeinu asked, and here Radak is quoting the verses from Parshat Kitisa. He says, Moses said, Hoidi eni no estrochecha. Make known to me your ways. And God said, I will do that. And, and he even made known to the Jewish people, Alilotav, Radak, like Mitsuda says, myself. Because that's the way he treated the Jewish people in the desert. And I know what you're thinking. Ah, that was an antiquity. That was in a time of miracles, of manna falling from heaven, and a time when we were enveloped in clouds of glory, or at least in a time when we lived in the Holy Land of Israel, with all of the tribes in their provincial formation, and the presence of Hashem was amongst us. Stop right there. Radak concludes, Exactly as Hashem revealed Himself and treated the children of Israel at a time of overt revelation, heightened spiritual sensitivity, and a mass divine consciousness that was shared by an overwhelming portion of the nation of Israel. In comparison to exilic times when we are spiritually displaced and essentially malfunctioning. We're underfunctioning. And yet, Hashem's ways are still the same. What are those ways? Ah, Racham Vachanun Hashem. So I need my provider to be compassionate. I need him to be merciful towards me. You don't need mercy when somebody measures up. So <laughs> imagine a person gets hired to do a job. And he does the job well. Does the job well. So he gets paid. So the employer says, you know, I'm going to be merciful to you. I'm going to pay you. And you're like, huh? What's so merciful about that? That's just, I mean, that's just the right thing to do. You hired me to do a job. I did the job. You owe it to me. But mercy is when a person didn't earn or deserve what they're asking for. Let's think about it. When do people say, can you please have rahmanus? Can you please be compassionate to me? Have mercy on me? Not when they're picking up their paycheck. Not even when they're coming to a friend and saying, hey, let's spend time together. Be compassionate to me. Invariably, it's a person making a request about something he or she doesn't really deserve. And yet, they say, I know, I, I don't measure up. But can you please be merciful to me? Can you have Rahmanus on me? I know how you're looking at me. I, I know you're not glossing over or ignoring my shortcomings, my ineptness, and inappropriateness, my tardiness, my failings. I know, I know. But I'm pleading. I'm asking you for mercy. So give it to me anyway. So how does God treat us? Not with justice, but with mercy. That's what the verse says. 
Lachum Vachan Hashem. The Yalkut Shimoni, in this very verse, states the following. What does it mean, Rachum Vachan Hashem? Omar Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachmeni, Rabbi Shmuel, the son of Nachmeni, said, Mayrich Ruchoi Im Horashoim. God has patience. He delays his anger and his reaction towards the wicked. Wicked. People who wantonly, mindfully act rebelliously against God. And if that doesn't offend you, they hurt other people in a mean, capricious way. Yeah. They're bad people. Russia is not a nice word. And yet, Hashem doesn't react immediately. He delays his reaction. And furthermore, God doesn't say, this miserable individual, this undeserving person, well, he may have done something nice at some point somewhere, but look how many horrible, terrible things this person has done. Don't expect remuneration from me. But God doesn't do that. Instead, said Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachmeni, Hashem values every single good deed done. And he remunerates. But a person who is so wholly undeserving of God's goodness and God's compassion still receives compassionate care. He's still treated in a fair and perhaps way beyond expected manner. So he'll get remuneration, even though in the grander scheme of things, this person is not deserving at all. That's the meaning of God's compassion. If a good thing was done, it'll be recompensed in this world. And what about righteous people who sometimes suffer? So Rashumu Banachmeni says, Hashem also does not react to righteous people who behave sometimes inappropriately. Who are we trying to fool? We all color outside the line sometimes. There are sins of commission. Sometimes there are sins of omission. Sometimes an omission can be worse than a sin of commission something was expected from you and you just ignored it can be extremely offensive really egregious and sometimes righteous people especially by dint and virtue of their standing and understanding were expected to behave in a far better way they fall short so does God react as, say, we would? Assuming they really have bothered you. Not they stepped on somebody else's toes. You're very quick to forgive that. How about stepping on your toes? When you have an ingrown toenail? Do you scream? Do you lash out? If you really are hurt? God makes himself hurt by us. He makes himself needy and 
caring. What we do, Hashem says, makes a difference to him in as much as that's actually beyond the scope of our understanding. So when a tzaddik behaves inappropriately, Hashem will sometimes give him the up and comments, the consequence, have to suffer the consequences of the negativity that he or she engendered in this world, not in the other world, not for eternity. But and then immediately afterwards Hashem will give them the solace and the tranquility and peace that they covet. Rabacha, in the name of Rabbi Tanchum, said, God doesn't react out of anger, obviously, an anthropomorphism. But eventually, when the time comes for pay up, there is a, an accounting. We all have to pay up, so to speak, at some point. But God doesn't do it in an emotional way. Not because God's not emotional. God doesn't get it. We use this terminology with regard to Hashem. We talk about Hashem's anger. We talk about Hashem's frustration. We talk about Hashem's joy. We talk about all these things. That obviously, it's anthropomorphical. It's metaphorical. But we talk about these things. And yet, just as we speak about God's anger, we speak about God's patience and God belaying His anger. Which is almost like an oxymoron because anger and delay don't go together. To really work hard at controlling anger. So Hashem is Rachum Vachanan. His compassion is always overriding. Yes, it says Hashem Ishmochama, God can be aggressive, so to speak, or to war. It says that Hashem is a God of vengeance. And they will exact payment. It says all of these things in the scripture. Yet overridingly, if you want to describe Hashem, God, the scriptures use the word Racham Vachanam. Now, we began this description of the criteria, the requisite qualities necessary for us to be able to place our trust is that your provider has to be overwhelmingly compassionate. So Rabbeinu B'chayah says, funny you should say that. It's exactly the way God is described. Now, do you know anybody who is overwhelmingly compassionate? Do you know anybody who's never compassionate? I do. Do you know anybody who's rarely compassionate? No. How about somebody who's sometimes compassionate? Not most of us can kind of fit in there. Anybody who's always compassionate? Always compassionate. God is always compassionate. You're going to say, well, that doesn't seem that way to me. <laughs> to which the logical response is, you're understanding of reality and the truth are very far from each other. Our personal take on things is not an accurate barometer of the objective truth. So, look, if you don't believe in the scripture and you don't believe that God ever communicated with humanity and you don't believe in prophets, if you don't believe, you don't believe. I, 
I'm not going to try to convince you to believe that is not the purpose of this class. But as we learned in yesterday's episode at length, Rabbeinu Bachai II makes it very clear that faith or belief is the tree. It's the trunk and its branches. Trust is the foliage and the fruits. I'm talking about foliage and fruits. So I believe in the trunk. I believe in the tree. The tree says God is the ultimate in compassion. Well, if he's the ultimate in compassion, then he meets the requisite for me to trust. He meets, he meets that requirement perfectly. Va'omar, and now we go a little bit further. And Rabbeinu B'chaya will introduce you to yet another verse. This is a verse from the book of the minor prophet Jonah, Yonah in the fourth chapter. Yonah queries, why is God so merciful and compassionate on the people of Nineveh, their wicked, sinning, rebellious, selfish, mean-spirited, capricious, Ugly examples of humanity. Why is God so compassionate? Why does God want to save these people? Why does he tell Yonah to risk his very life by preaching to them? And Hashem answers the question to Yonah. It's a fascinating story where Yonah sees this plant, this kikoyim plant that grows overnight. And then Hashem says, chop it down and destroy it. And Yonah says, what did the plant do? Poor plant. Why would you want to destroy it? Hashem says, you didn't even create the plant. How much did you invest in the plant? It grew overnight. And yet, because it provided a little bit of shade for you, you feel compassion for it. Shemba says, do you not think I feel compassion for my creatures? This is what Rabbeinu Rebbechaya quotes now. Va'omar Hashem says, And I will not be compassionate about a city teeming with life? The great metropolis of Nineveh? You look in the book of Yonah, on this very verse, I find it, I found it so fascinating because the Mitzudas David says, Va'anila Achas, Haloi Ninvehi Maisa Yodai. Ninvei is my handiwork. Listen to me carefully. God is not only the master or penultimate example of compassion. God is compassionate because He created us. So one is compassionate towards that which they created. That's the point He makes to Yonah. You didn't even create this plant. Just watched it grow. And yet you feel compassion for it. My friends, you and I are God's handiwork. God created us. No, we are not a random accident. We are not a collection of cells that somehow found themselves and clumped together. God created us. That's an overridingly important part of the Genesis narrative. God created us. We have a creator. If we have a creator, how is he not going to have mercy? In other words, by very virtue of the fact that He's our Creator, He has mercy on us. 
he's compassionate. And this is something which we didn't see in the first verse. In the first verse, God tells you. He's describing. King David says, God is Racham Vachanan. Here we're getting the rhyme and reason. We're getting the logic behind it. And why? How can we be so sure? Hashem tells you why. Let's take a look in Radak. He says, Hashem criticizes Jonah. He says, you know, you, you're getting compassionate. You're getting all like choked up about this plant. He says, You didn't put any effort into it. You didn't raise him up. But you do already. What investment did you make? And Radak says, the more work you put into something, the worse you feel about its destruction, about losing it. Easy to come, easy to go. When you worked hard on something, and then you lose it, it hurts a lot more. Now, there's an obvious question that you could ask. But God doesn't really work hard. God doesn't expend toil. He doesn't get exhausted. We say that Hashem doesn't have to toil to create the universe. Okay. But the Torah uses the construction of human speech. Because otherwise, this whole exercise is moot. We have to have some kind of language. We have to have some kind of currency of exchange. And the currency we use is, is human speech, figures of speech. So figuratively speaking, God toiled and created the world. And if he created the world, and if he created me, and he created you, and he created all of us, is it not obvious that Hashem will have compassion on us? I mean, he created me. Why wouldn't he have compassion on me? Radak continues to explain, he says, when you read the verse, the rest of the verse, the prophet Yonah describes Odom a person who doesn't know the difference between right and left or maybe right or wrong. So, what do you mean? Nineveh was full of sinners. So Radak says, okay, so there was children there. There's children. They have no sins. The only reason they should have to suffer a consequence is by dint of their parents. That's not really fair. Let's kind of call it a consequence, an onish, a punishment. He says there's a lot of animals there. Animals have no merits or demerits. Animals are just animals. They follow their instincts. If God has compassion on a bird, on a donkey, on a cow, on a fish, why wouldn't God have compassion on me? We are created in God's image, not the animals. And yet God has compassion on all of his creatures. This is a major point being driven home. If compassion is one of the qualities, if caring about you is something that I need to know before I put my trust in you, you find nobody better to place your trust in than God. Because that's what God's all about. Now, the Pas Lechem does something very interesting here. He takes this even further. 
He says, compassion or pity is oftentimes the reaction to suffering. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of people who have compassion on the Jewish people when they're victims. They're compassionate for Holocaust survivors after, after the Holocaust, for people who survived pogroms and persecution. But they don't have mercy on strong Jews defending themselves in Israel. You know what I'm talking about. Who are we fooling? I can't support a country that, that doesn't have my values. Oh, really? I have no problem doing business in China. Whose values do they support? You got no problem buying oil from Saudi Arabia. Which values do you identify with? Oh, but you know, you can't sell my ice cream in Israel because, come on. It's just plain old biased. Unfortunately, compassion is oftentimes the reaction we have after somebody suffers, not before. In that case, in that case, says the Pasalechem, we have a real problem here. Because betochen, trust in Hashem, is not after the fact. That's when you rely on your faith, chas v'sholem, if it comes to that. But betochen is your surety, your certainty, your confidence that things will work out well. But compassion doesn't come to later. We can see it. I gave you that politically incorrect example, but you know what I'm talking about. The Paslechem says precisely. And this is why he says, Rabbeinu Bachaya does not suffice with the verse of Psalm 103, but instead turns to the end of the book of Jonah. V'shem toimar. I'm quoting Paslechem's commentary. Unless you say that when it says merachim, when it says merciful, when it says compassionate, it's al hakoyavim. It's the people who are already in pain. They have compassion for victims, not victors. Not before. <laughs> when they're beat up, when they're broken, bleeding, dead. No, then I'm compassionate. So what will help the betochen? Because the betochen is koydim ba'aparanis. The whole idea of betochen is to place your trust in Hashem that it's going to be good. I'm not going to give up. I know God is there for me. And I know God has compassion. Hey, one second. Compassion? Compassion is after the fact. Houston, we have a problem. This is a, uh, a real challenge to the argument that's being presented. In order for me to have betochen, the provider has to be compassionate. I'm going to place my trust in the provider so that he will provide, so that things won't happen in a negative way. But one second, that's when the compassion kicks in. So Rabbeinu Bechaya says, Rabbeinu Bechaya tells you, look at the verse in Yonah. When Hashem says that there's this great metropolis, the city of Nineveh, Hashem says, Nineveh, and I won't have compassion. Tell me, what happened in Nineveh so far? What happened? Has destruction been unleashed in Nineveh? Has consequence been suffered in Nineveh? No, nothing happened. No, it didn't happen because the people did tshuva. They did tshuva because they responded to the heartfelt words of Yonah. 
And yet, when Yonah said, why'd you send me for? Hashem didn't say, oh, after I unleash my fury, I'll have compassion. Hashem said, because I won't have compassion. So the Pas Lechem says, this is a tremendously important verse. It's not for emphasis. This addresses a core challenge to the very thesis of Betachen itself. For this very reason, he brings proof from the narrative of Ninveh. When Hashem says that, He was merciful, He was compassionate, before they were suffering. In fact, He did away with the decree. The suffering never unfolded. Because Hashem was compassionate. Now, when you have compassion, is it when somebody is already in a sorry state? Now, I know there are some people that never have compassion on anybody, but most of us will have compassion when somebody's in a sorry state. You know, they'll, they'll show us a picture of a child somewhere in Africa or Asia who's starving and say, won't you just give 67 cents so this child can eat? A normal person says, oh, it's a, what a terrible thing. I just spent five bucks on my coffee. How could I not give a dollar to help a child eat? It stirs your compassion. Well, some people, it makes no difference. For most normal, decent people, if not, not never, rarely, or maybe sometimes, maybe you're a, a finer person. Maybe you always express compassion when somebody's in a broken or sorry state. Hashem expresses compassion regardless of somebody's suffering. Hashem is compassionate because He created us. It's like a whole different level of compassion. And so, the first quality which would be required for me to place my trust, my unshakable, unquestionably questioning confidence and reliance in a provider seems logically can only be placed in God. That's quality one. Now let's move on to the next quality. The second thing we said is that if you're going to place your trust in somebody, they have to be the kind of person who along with their feelings for you they have to be kind of engaged, you know, attentive, not checked out, or experiencing on occasion a cognitive dissonance towards your needs. They have to really always be involved, always be committed, always be connected. And then you can trust that person or that provider. Does God ever? check out? Does God ever just ignore us and not feel our pain? The Bena says, well, take a look in the book of Psalms. And there, in Psalm 121, the famous Shir Lamalot, in verse 4 it says, Hine, lo yanum velo yishan Shomer Yisrael, the guardian of Israel, neither sleeps nor slumbers. 
Now, God doesn't have a bed or a pillow, and he doesn't need to go to sleep any more than he needs to eat or get a pedicure. That's all moot and ridiculous terminology. It's a metaphor. It's anthropomorphism. So what is the parable about when we say God doesn't sleep or slumber? The answer is he doesn't ignore us. As the Mitzudas David puts it, He never stops supervising. He's always clued in. Who are you going to trust? People who sometimes are involved and sometimes are elsewhere. God never stops thinking about you. He's always watching over you. Moving on to number three. This gets really interesting because in Rabbeinu Bahaya's description of number three, he, he discussed he discussed this need for that provider to be very resolute. What he called chazak, he called him strong. He said, lo he's not going to be overwhelmed. He's not going to be in any way dissuaded from coming through for you. He's committed. He's going to come through. He's got the power to overcome any obstacle. He's got the will and the stamina to take all paths of greatest resistance and get to the destination. Interestingly, Rabbeinu B'chai now begins with the words, Yishuhu chacham, and he is wise, v'lo yunutzach, and he isn't deterred or overwhelmed, vanquished. So what's going on here? <laughs> That's not, the third starts with the idea, chazok and lo yunutzach. And instead it says, chacham v'lo yunutzach. So the commentaries go to town here. I mean, let's say the Marple and Nefesh says, hmm, I smell a typo. He says, nah, nah, it's tos seifrim. This, this is most likely, it's a mistake. It should have said, not chacham, but chazak. The printer messed it up. That's what the Marple and Nefesh says. Which is in perfect corollary with the third quality. Chazak, velo yunutzach. He's mighty, he's strong, he has stamina, he follows through. But it doesn't say that. That's the little problem. Now the, the Tov Halavanon is a bit of a different, a little, a little more of like a more refined uh, take on this. He says, look, he says, number one, this is Klape Asib HaShlishis. This addresses the third quality, the third criteria. Okay. Even though we're using the language of Chazak, and now we're talking about Chacham, it's not the same thing. Might and mental capacity, not one and the same. He says, yeah, but Inyan Echadu, it actually is because brute force doesn't accomplish anything. You have to be wise, you have to know how to use force. It's like 
It's like the force of spirit rather than the spirit of force. He says, you, 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 when we talk about might, we're not talking about, 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 about muscles, about raw power. He says, to know how to apply the pressure, to know how to be able to successfully prosecute your mission, to know how to bring it to its fruition, that requires a strategy. Without a strategy, the victory won't be achieved. <laughs> victory is just, just to throw human waves at the enemy. It's not a, that's not, it's not a strategy. A strategy is wisdom. The Teva Levanan draws on a verse which is found in the 18th chapter of the second book of Kings. And he says, Hashem said, I said you need to have Eitza, which is like a strategy. You need to have advice, insight, and you need to have might, strength. So, it's not good enough to have soldiers with brawn and, and lots of weaponry. Warfare is about guile. It's about strategy, timing. There's, there's a lot of wisdom. So it's like, they call it the art of war. I mean, it's like it's an oxymoron. War is hell. It's horrible. People are dead and maimed. It's terrible. But there's a some moral wars that have to be prosecuted against evil and there's a, a wisdom to it. Hey, look, the, our beloved Israel is tiny geographically and outgunned, outnumbered and yet, with God's help, successful every time because Hashem is on our side. But Chayelet Zvag and Ali operate with tremendous insight, tremendous strategy, tremendous wisdom. No question about that. So the Tova Levana says, it says Chacham, but it's, it's not that different. Chacham is Chazak. The only problem, it doesn't say that, but <laughs> and the Pasuk that he, that he quotes from the Book of Kings says, Eitzah not Chachma Ugvura, but okay. He doesn't feel comfortable just saying, well, it's just a printing mistake. I personally found the Tov Halavanon's answer somewhat satisfying, a little, a little more satisfying than the Marpel and Nefesh, just like, yeah, call it out, that's a pretty mistake. But the Ned, the Bakaydish's words, really, really struck a chord with me. Listen to what he says. He says, okay, it seems that one should edit this. It seems to be a pretty mistake here. It says, it says, uh, Chacham, it should have said Chazak. They both start with a Ches, but then there's a Zayin and a Kuf, not a, not a, not a Chaf and a Mem. It should, it should say Chazak, not Chacham, if we're in corollary with what we mentioned earlier, and we are. I mean, by and large, we are in corollary. But it doesn't say that, he says. That's the problem. You know, facts are stubborn things. He says, I saw in, in all the books, this is in all the printed versions is like this. So I didn't feel comfortable, says the Ned de to go and just like scratch out, you know, cross it off, you know, it's, it's probably wrong. He says, I couldn't bring myself to stretch forth my hand. It's a euphemism. I, I can't tell you 
It's a printing mistake. Okay, so, so then, what, but, but it doesn't seem to make sense. I mean, Marple and Ephesus' point is well taken. This is, this is the third criteria, and third criteria begins with Chazak lo yinutzach, not Chacham lo yinutzach. So the Nedebe Kodesh says like this. He says, I therefore believe that this paragraph, these few sentences, are not only addressing the third criteria, but in fact they address both the third and the fourth criteria. Incidentally, in case you forgot, the fourth criteria was that he knows. Your provider has to know what you need. He has to know what you need in the immediate sense and in a more of a futuristic, strategic way. The provider has to be intuitive. He has to be wise. So the Nebdeh Bakaydish says, therefore, I believe that Chochem V'leyenutzach is actually a composite of both the third and the fourth. Incidentally, this makes perfect sense because the next thing Rabbeinu Bahaya is going to address is the fifth quality. And he never really addresses the fourth. Or at least not in the fullest sense. So Hashem is Chacham Lev. We say God is the wise of heart, the understanding. And he knows what's best for us. If somebody's not wise and intuitive, how do you know how to help the person who placed their trust in you? They placed their trust in you. You haven't a clue of what they actually need. But, but, but you love him. That's nice. You can smother him. Smother him to death with your love. You, you don't know what he needs. You need to know what he needs. All normal parents love their children, and sometimes they don't know what their children need, so they seek professional help. That's a good thing, by the way. It's not enough to love your child or mother your child, because you can end up smothering your child. Sometimes we need professional help. Sometimes there's a diagnosis necessary. And we need to understand what our child needs. And we don't always have the wisdom on our own. Hashem gave us the responsibility. Sometimes that responsibility includes getting the help of professionals because your child has a problem or a challenge. So you need the wisdom, not just the love. Now, the eyes of the one who places his trust are raised up to you. They're relying on you. What if you didn't know what to do? What if you meant well, but actually ended up stunting or hurting this very entity that placed its trust in you because you didn't understand the situation? Aval Habeda, but the Creator. Not only does he love us, not only does he care about us, not only is he always attentive, the creator is Yedea Ba'afnetielas. He knows what's good for us better than we know ourselves. And that's the fourth reason. But he isn't deterred. That's the third reason. So you'll ask the question, Rabbi Nedeb Kodesh, then he should have said, I don't, see, I don't think that's a question. I'll tell you why. Because the verse from Job, 
that he is about to quote says, So he borrows the or using the phraseology of the scripture. Since the scripture, since the verse he's about to quote mentions first Chacham and then Amitz, so he says, To me, that makes perfect sense. I could be wrong, but it just seems so right. It seems so. No, I'm not saying this myself, chas Then the Bakaydish says, Who am I to just like, you know, use whiteout, cross words out, change words? Makes sense, he says. So, what is the verse from the book of Job? What does the verse from the book of Job say? Okay, let's take a look at that. So, in, in the Sefer Eov, the verse that he's quoting is in the ninth chapter. Of Sefer Eov. And there in the ninth chapter, Eov says concerning God. He says, Hashem is Chacham Lev, he's proverbially wise of heart, the Amitz Koach and mighty of power. Who gets in his way <laughs> and walks away whole in peace? Huh? This is Eov's first response to Bildad. And as uh, Rabbi Adin Evan Yisrael puts it in the, the Steinsaltz translation, and I'll quote from it, he says, Job begins this speech by expressing the greatness of God, thereby highlighting the helplessness of the one who wishes to contend with him. So let's take a look now in the book of, of Job. And you want to contend with God? He's Chacham Leif. So the Mitzudas David says, <laughs> He's wise and mighty. Like, what are you doing? He is Betachlas Hashlemus. He is the penultimate paradigm of wisdom and might. Who's to start up with God? Venisha Beshalva. And he'll leave this engagement peacefully. The way the Mitzudas interprets the word V'yishlam comes from the word Shalom as in peace. The Ibn Ezra says V'yishlam V'hayah Shalom and he'll be whole. You want to get broken? Go fight with God. How do lots of wise people say? Never pick a fight you can't win. You're not winning a fight with God. That's got to be a dumb fight to pick. So... Hashem is called Chacham Lev, and Hashem is called Amitz Koach. What do we say that, that the provider needs to be? He needs to be powerful. He needs to be undeterrable. He needs to be able to overcome any obstacle in his way. It says it openly in the book of Job. You get in his way, you're going to be cast aside. Simple as that. He is Chacham Lev. It's not just IQ, it's EQ. There's Lev, he feels, he knows what you need. The most insightful, intuitive of all is God. And you need that because He could love you and He can be attentive and He can be undeterred and be clueless. Not God. How many people do you know that are truly loving and compassionate? Always. Not never, never. A lot of people like that who are never compassionate. Not, not sometimes. 
not rarely, always, always attentive, never, ever miss a beat, always intuitive, always wise, always undeterrable, following through till the, the, the sweet conclusion. Who do you know like that? Who are you fooling? It doesn't exist. This is actually a job description that can only match God. Omar, and furthermore, it says in the book of Chronicles, and this is from Chronicles 1, the 29th chapter, the 11th verse. David HaMelech says, L'cho Hashem hagdulo v'hagvuro v'hatiferes. King David says to you, God, Sorry. Let me find this Chronicles. I want to share something with you, once again, from the, the Steinzal's version that was authored, or at least edited by Rabbi Adina ben Yisrael, Zechariah Levracha. He says like this. He says about this 29th chapter. This is apparently King David's final speech before a large audience. Although there is no precise date, as it is likely, it is likely that the speech is presented towards the end of his life. Despite his frailty, the king is of sound mind and is able to withstand the exertion required to deliver a public discourse. Consequently, it stands to reason it's not during King David's final days. But this is his farewell speech. This is his final public address. And he's speaking about God. And he says, to you, God is gedula and gevura. To you, God is greatness and might. Vatiferes and splendor. Vahanetzach and triumph. Vahahoyd and glory. That's, that's for God. I found it so interesting that when I looked in the commentary of Rashi on this verse, so Rashi says, Nosan shevach la'kodesh baruchu. King David was a great king. He said, I have greatness. Where do you think I got the greatness from? He says, ha'kodesh baruchu. God gave this to me. I didn't get it on my own. Nobody has greatness. You have greatness because God gave you greatness. How do you get so much money? Billions of shekels it would need to construct the Beis Migdash, which of course he tasked and gave the privilege to his son Shlomo. But David HaMelech made all the plans and put all the money together. Has there ever been a mightier warrior than King David? Where did David's might come from? God gave him the might. To fight the enemies of Israel. Who gave David HaMelech victory? To take the booty, the spoils of the pagans. For the need of the Beis HaMegdash. HaKadosh Baruch so what do you want to know? You want to know where you're going to find might? You want to know where you're going to find the enduring power? You want to know where you're going to find the ability to overcome and to triumph? Well, ask the greatest warrior. Where did he get his might from? Where and from what did he find the reservoir of inner strength to triumph as he did? By his own admission, he got it from God. So David Amalek says, I got it from God. We don't know anybody who is as mighty as David Amalek. And yet, even King David 
said, it's not mine. So Rabbeinu Bechaya says, you're looking for might? Where are you going to look? If not, to God himself. Interestingly, the Radak, he says, He glosses over or omits the word tiferet, the splendor word. He links might and netzach, which is exactly how we spoke about the quality when we said, Hashlishi chazak lo Mighty, non-vanquishable. Can't deter him. So he puts in this verse together, Adak actually puts together the Gvura and the Netzach. And finally, Rabbeinu Bechaya leaves us with a closing verse. This is from the prophecies of today Asr, the minor prophets. It's at the end of the prophecies of the Novi Tzfanya. Tzfanya Hanovi, he speaks in his final chapter, he castigates Yerushalayim about their forthcoming punishment, but he also lays out a vision for future consolation, for Am Yisrael and for the whole world. And when he does this, when he describes and depicts the Jewish people's return to Eretz Yisrael, when he depicts what consolation, what the ultimate triumph will look like, he says, Hashem Eloikayich Bekirbech, God is amongst you, is in your midst. Giber Yoshia, he is the valiant one who rescues. We don't do this by our own. It's not our self-determination, our force, our might, our pyre, baloney. We will be victorious. We will prevail. We will follow through. We will triumph because Hashem is our might and because Hashem is the one who delivers that triumph. My dear friends, that is precisely the point Rabbeinu Bechaya makes for us by saying Hashem Elekaich is Bekirbech. As the Metsudas David puts it, he is the mighty one who will do those mighty deeds. Alright, so you're looking for a provider. I say, I want to see a provider who's strong. I want a provider who's there for me. Great! Find me a mighty one. Now, where does he get his might from? Hashem Because God is Bekirbech, God's in his midst. And so we really have a stunning depiction of these three or possibly four qualities, these categories, and they're only met at one address, always. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Creator. So who are you going to trust? In whom can we place our absolute reliance? If not, in Almighty God Himself. The Bainu Bechaya will continue to make his arguments to help you and I come to our own conclusion, Be'ezrat Hashem, in the next episode. I hope that you found this uplifting. I hope you don't mind the length, the time that we invest in trying to really understand every word, every nuance. If we wouldn't look into every verse, how would you appreciate Rabbeinu Baha'i's words? How would you come to the rock-solid conclusion? You and I come to the rock-solid conclusion that Betochen is of merit and value, and it's only to be found in Hashem. So, if you did find this uplifting, 
and inspirational and educational, please. I'd appreciate it if you hit like, share it with your family and friends. And if you haven't yet, please subscribe and enable notifications, youtube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. Thank you for joining. Have a beautiful day. I look forward to seeing you back.